Uh, let's ask God to help us now with his word. Please pray with me as I pray for us. Uh, our gracious uh, Heavenly Father, uh, as uh, we have just heard, uh, you have given us your word to help us to learn how to trust our Lord Jesus for salvation and through its teaching, rebuke, correction and training uh, to equip us to live lives as his followers. Uh, we pray in your mercy uh, that your word would do its work in our lives tonight. Help me to speak it truthfully and clearly and help us uh, to receive it as your word and by the power of your spirit uh, to put it into practice. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our expectations are so important. Uh, they can make the difference between disappointment and satisfaction. Uh, that's why salesmen and politicians are told it's better to under-promise and over-deliver uh, than over-promise and under-deliver, even though many seem to ignore that advice. Henry VIII married his fourth wife, Anne of Cleves, on the basis of a portrait of her by Hans Holbein the Younger. Uh, but when he met her, he confessed himself disappointed. He said, she is nothing so fair as she has been reported and the marriage was never consummated and then annulled after six months. It's hard to live with disappointed expectations. And expectations don't just determine whether you're disappointed or satisfied. They can make all the difference between being adequately prepared and being woefully exposed and vulnerable. If, for example, you're walking or cross-country skiing in the alpine areas, realistic expectations about the weather you might meet that guide your preparation, well, that can make the difference between life and death when the storms roll in. Expectations are vital to being well prepared. What expectations do you have about what you will encounter as you live out your faith in the Lord Jesus, as you share the gospel, as you persevere in being unashamed of the gospel? Do you expect, well, people to be agreeable and cooperative, to be always as they claim to be, to work without opposition? Do you expect to be able to live a peaceful, undisturbed life where you can just get on with your plans without any challenges? What are your expectations for the times in which you live, in which you are called to share the gospel? Paul wants Timothy to have realistic expectations of what he will encounter as he continues faithful to the gospel, as he does what he's called to do, unashamedly teach and preach the gospel. Paul wants to prepare Timothy for what he will encounter so that he's ready when he meets it. Know this, he says. And if we're not going to be disappointed in the life we live as Christians, if we're going to be prepared to live faithful to the gospel, prepared so that we're not caught off guard, not overwhelmed by the destructive storms that will overtake us, we should listen. For the description Paul gives of the times in which Timothy lives and ministers is true for us as well. His times are our times. But know this, hard times will come in the last 
days. Timothy is living in the last days and so in the Bible's understanding are we. Paul is talking of Timothy's present. We see that in verse 5 as Timothy is now to avoid the people described as characterising the last days, avoid all such people. The Apostle Peter actually declared the arrival of the last days in the first proclamation of the Christian gospel in Acts 2, replacing the afterwards in the prophecy of Joel 2 uh, by the last days. He said, and it will be in the last days, says God, that I will pour out my spirit on all people. And the author of Hebrews says, oh, long ago God spoke to our ancestors by the prophets at different times and in different ways, but in these last days he has spoken to us by his son. The last days are now all the time from Jesus' death, resurrection and ascension until he returns. And they're called the last days because in God's plan, after Christ's work, the next thing to happen is the end. See, our Lord Jesus' victory on the cross has sealed the fate of the rebellion against God that's characterised this present evil age. And his resurrection and pouring out of the Spirit marks the certainty of the coming of the age to come. Christ has triumphed over all the enemies of God. In Revelation's language, the lamb has triumphed and the devil has been cast down from heaven and all that is to follow are just the judgments until the final judgment. Christ has achieved the salvation of God's people, secured their presence in the new heaven and earth, and now we await the revealing of our Lord in glory in the final judgment. Wait while the gospel, the royal proclamation of God's saving triumph in his son, the Lord Jesus, goes to all nations, the good news of the kingdom will be proclaimed in the world as a testimony to all nations and then the end will come. We are in the last days and Paul says in the last days there will be hard times. Now, of course, by hard times, Paul isn't meaning times when we're going to be hard up, short of cash. Now, Paul's not speaking of people's experience here of human history being consistently bad, of all of life being like this all the time in all places, but there will be times which are hard. He's he's warning we shouldn't expect our times to be consistently good, stable and peaceful. The word hard was used of the behaviour of wild animals or the raging seas, threatening, dangerous, unpredictable. So these are times that will be hard to deal with, times hard to anticipate and control in Stott's phrase, times that are painful and perilous, hard to endure and hard to cope with, times that will test us. Now just note that. We shouldn't expect the smooth, unbroken progress our society likes to suggest will be human destiny from this point on. Smooth, unbroken progress because, well, we're so much more virtuous, so much more knowledgeable, so much more in control of the world than the people of past ages. A world where now everything is to get better and better and so we can feel let down and cheated if that's not our experience or where perhaps... You as you are at the present, we can 
be overwhelmed with anxiety and despondency if there's some interruption to our plans, our expectations of increasing material prosperity and health. No, we shouldn't expect that. Know this, hard times will come in the last days. And the source of these hard times? Perhaps you think of the events mentioned by Jesus as characteristic of this age, famines, earthquakes, pestilence, the catastrophic events that you see so often in apocalyptic movies, you know, the meteor hitting the earth, the giant tsunami, the escaped virus. Events, challenges that, of course, the movies tell us humanity can unite together to overcome. But Paul points us not to those events but to the behaviour of people as the source of the difficulties that we face in these last days. The hard times come from within us and not visited upon us. And so humanity takes them with us throughout time, throughout history. Every generation should expect them. We'll have hard times because of hard hearts, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, without love for what's good, traitors, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now Paul is not saying every person you meet will be all of these things, but he is saying our world is full of people who are like this, who show one or more of these characteristics or behaviours and look around and you know that to be true, don't you? And why? Why will people be like this? Well, at its heart, you see, is misdirected love. The whole list is sandwiched between love of self, love of money, the first two items, and then the last two, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. See, that love of other things, created things, and above all, the self in place of love of God is at the root of the world's instability, turmoil and grief. See, this is saying that people will continue to be children of Adam, lovers of self, putting themselves in the place of God, trusting themselves rather than God's word, living to please themselves rather than God and so willing to use and abuse other people to satisfy themselves. And that love of self will show in love of money and love of pleasure, the true great loves of our society where many pursue material wealth and many pursue their own pleasure. Yet we know, don't we, that this love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, the embezzlement of company funds, the cheating on tax, state-supported gambling that impoverishes families, Dishonesty that destroys community trust and love of pleasure, yes, distracting from the service of others, subjugating others to your desires. Oh, love of pleasure that can lead to enslavement, to drugs or sexual desire, the betrayal of trust. And, of course, there are all the other behaviours, boastful, proud, demeaning, people who won't accept rebuke or slander those who oppose them, who seek to exclude them from participation in society. And, of course, the behaviours that destroy relationships within and without families, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable. Did you know that elder abuse is increasing in our society, especially financial abuse? 
It's one of those things that make palliative care and geriatricians, palliative care physicians and geriatricians nervous about assisted dying or euthanasia. And we see people who are unloving, don't we, abandoning family love, leaving many to a lonely old age or leaving single mothers to near destitution. And we see people's inability to forgive that leaves a legacy of bitterness that runs through families for generations. Oh, people who are slanderous, without self-control, brutal, without love, what's good, reckless, all these are recognisable, aren't they, and present amongst us. And it's these attitudes and behaviours that bring grief, bring times that are hard to bear to individuals, families, societies around the world. You know, the pain and ruin of families through rebellious children, the betrayal of societies, the inability to address pressing problems, whether it's military procurement, power, security, climate change, because of competing self-interest, of the eruption of violence, a teenager stabbed and the devastation it brings to communities because of recklessness, the corruption of police forces and judiciary through love of money, the money that comes from drugs, the undermining of families through love of pleasures and the cascading effects of the loss of respect for authority or the loss of the capacity to form enduring, trusting, stable relationships. Sin, big-ass sin that says, I will please myself and not God. I'll love created things in place of my creator is still resident in the hearts of humanity and it brings hard times to believer and unbeliever alike. Paul wants Timothy to know that, to not expect a smooth ride, for these are times that will make the work of the gospel more difficult. Civil unrest, for example, can make it hard to pursue plans to make the gospel known. And more directly, people can react badly when their loves are confronted or they can find it hard to break with behaviours that have become habits. You know, we can experience that reaction and difficulty as well, can't we, and be discouraged by hard times. You can look, say, at a society that's rejected truth in favour of its love of self, of money, of pleasure, a society like ours, and think, how can the gospel ever get a hearing here? You can look at the mess human sin has made of a life and think, how can the message of the gospel address this? And that's when we have to remember Those hard-hearted people Paul is describing, we were them. We were in the grips of love of self, not loving God, and the gospel saved us and it can rescue others. That's what Paul says in Titus. For we too were once foolish, disobedient, deceived, enslaved by various passions and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, detesting one another, But when the kindness of God our Saviour and his love for humanity appeared, he saved us. Not by works of righteousness that we had done, but according to his mercy. He saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewal by the Holy Spirit. We too, we were like that. And the Lord, out of his mercy, saved us. People will be, as Paul describes them. But the gospel 
can rescue them. In the chaos, the bitterness, the anger, the grief, God's grace is more powerful. There will be hard times, but the gospel's still powerful to save in those times. And part of those hard times it will be that throughout the last days, in our days, we will encounter false religion. We'll meet people, verse 5, who hold the form of godliness but deny its power. They have the outward form of Christianity but no reality, no substance to their profession. And you know that, don't you? You meet them. They style themselves as a Christian community. They sing the songs, meet in a church building, have leadership with Christian titles, can think themselves righteous because they're religious. But on the one hand, perhaps their lives and beliefs just like the world around them, or on the other, they can be very loud about their orthodoxy but lack love, be riddled with pride and self-righteousness. And meeting people who style themselves Christian but have no substance, unless you're alert, is first confusing, then discouraging, and unless you break with them, destructive to your faith, to the continuing health of your Christian life. Confusing. You meet them and expect them to be excited about what you're excited about, the gospel, to be committed to scriptural godliness that you're committed to, to make the same confession of Jesus as Lord as you do. But then you find, well, they may not insist on sexual purity or they may talk of Jesus as one way of salvation or, on the other hand, they may insist on conformity to external rules the way you dress, the way you speak, submitting to the leadership, but have no love, no desire to see people saved. And that's confusing, isn't it? And then discouraging because they don't behave as believers. You expect love and find coldness or you meet anger or selfish manipulation. Their language, their jokes or the way they talk of others no different from the world, their desires for material wealth and security. Confusing discouraging, destructive. Because if you start to accept their standards, adapt the expectations of your own behaviour and confession to theirs, if you start to think that sin and judgement are not the big problems or the atoning death of Jesus is not the only source of salvation, or if you start to speak of people finding many ways to God, or of how we have to be accepting of all kinds of behaviours, if you start to think your righteousness is found in keeping the rules, you're on the way to destroying your faith. And that's why you have to break, avoid those who hold to the form of godliness but deny its power. You see, they're like a car without the engine, never going to go anywhere. You hop in and you're just wasting your time. Or they're like a kite with no wind or a body with a heart of stone. But what does Paul mean by the power of godliness? They've got the form of godliness but denying its power. Well, Paul has spoken of power earlier in 2 Timothy, hasn't he? That God has given us not a spirit of fear but one of power, love and self-control. He has spoken of joining in suffering by the power of God and how Timothy is able to guard the good deposited entrusted him through the Holy Spirit who lives in us. 
The power Paul is referring to is the power of the Spirit, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit the Lord Jesus gives to all who repent and believe the gospel. The Spirit who gives us a new heart that desires to do God's will. All the references are in the transcript, by the way, in the outline. The Spirit who gives us understanding and conviction of the truth of God's word. The Spirit who is powerful to put to death the misdeeds of the body and who can bear in our lives the character of genuine godliness, the fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control. The Spirit who can sustain us in joy in suffering. The Spirit who turns us from love of this world to long for the resurrection life. The Spirit whom we must not grieve by persisting in misuse of our tongue and indulging bitterness, anger, wrath and malice. You cannot be Christ's without his Spirit and you cannot live the life of Christ's follower without the Spirit, and the Spirit will show. It will show in a life that daily dies to self and comes alive to do God's will, a life that's being transformed in character, a life that's growing in understanding and conviction of the truth of the gospel, a life different from the life of those with hard hearts. See, one of the perils of the last days is false religion, religion that's not marked by conviction of the spirit-given truth of the scriptures and conviction and not marked by the behaviour that shows the spirit-empowered transformation from love of self to love of Christ. You'll meet that false religion, religion that's confusing, discouraging and destructive. It's out there. And we have to avoid it. And to avoid it, you have to first be able to discern it. And the best way is to know for yourself the power of godliness, to be giving yourself to the work of Christ's spirit in you so that you love and long for the fruit of the spirit in your life and you expect it in the lives of others who say they're believers and so that you're growing in understanding of the spirit-given word so that you can then recognise words teaching that's not of the spirit. Where you are doing that, where you are giving yourself to the spirit's work and the spirit's given truth in scripture, when you meet those who say they are Christian and their lives don't match their profession, you will know. And when they're Confession doesn't conform to the truth of the gospel. You will know. And taught by God, you will avoid them. You won't keep fellowshipping with them or being taught by them. Taught by them, that's right, for in the last days we'll meet those who are actively promoting that false religion for gain and opposing the truth of the gospel who will prey upon the vulnerable. For among them are those who worm their way into households and deceive gullible women, overwhelmed by sins and led astray by a variety of passions, always learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
Now, of course, uh, that mention of gullible women jars, doesn't it, in a society that's very sensitive to any suggestion that women might be not equal to men that might characterise women as weaker or less able. And let me say that is not Paul's point. He's not talking about the intrinsic nature of women at all. Rather, he is speaking of a social reality that was known in Ephesus. You see, in the ancient world, most women were confined to the domestic sphere. Not all. There are women like Lydia, who was a merchant, and Priscilla, who was a partner of Aquila in business and faith. But many women were confined to the domestic sphere, to their households. And they often received little education and had no encouragement to participate in wider society. And so they were very vulnerable to charlatans and peddlers of secret knowledge. You see, Paul's quite deliberate when he talks of these false teachers worming their way into households. That is, they're actually seeking to gain access to households and intimacy with those whose life was confined to the domestic sphere, a sphere often shielded from public scrutiny where they wouldn't be challenged about their views. And here the false teachers could meet people burdened by guilt and governed by their passions, needy people, often not equipped with intellectual or religious training, and they could peddle their lies so that the women were always learning. There was no end to it, no end, because it was actually a source of income for the false teachers and they just kept leading them on. Always some new speculation, always an invitation to go deeper. And, of course, truth was a destination impossible to attain for they were being taught lies. This is tragic, and it is tragic. Tragic for the teacher and preacher of the gospel. And it's so frustrating, difficult and discouraging when you see that false teaching, isn't it? Difficult because, or frustrating, for the truth of the gospel could actually bring these women liberation from sin and a new heart with godly desires, what they actually need. And difficult because the false teachers, by their unscrupulous pursuit of a following, were creating suspicion of any Christian teaching in the wider community and discouraging because... Actually, they were actively opposing the truth, contradicting the gospel for gain. We see those kinds of charlatans today, don't we? Exploiting the weak and vulnerable, poor and the chronically ill, say, with promises of health and wealth for gain, or enticing the psychologically vulnerable into communities built around the teacher where they're then stripped of their wealth or worse to support the teacher Paul likens them to the magicians who oppose the magicians in Pharaoh's court who were actively opposed, who actively opposed Moses when he was bringing the saving message of God to Israel the message of their deliverance from Egypt now those magicians are not named in Exodus but later Jewish tradition gave them the names Janus and Jambres and you see in Exodus they opposed Moses by competing with him When Aaron turned his staff into a snake, so did they. Aaron turned water into blood, so did they. Called frogs to cover the land, so did they. They wanted to show that their power was the same as Moses, that they and their gods were his equals. And they stopped Pharaoh from paying attention to Moses, taking Moses' message seriously. 
Actually, I only made things worse for the Egyptians, not better. And soon enough, by the third plague, the gnats, they couldn't compete and had to confess that Moses was exercising the power of God and then with the sixth plague boils, they couldn't even stand in Moses' presence. Their humiliation was public and complete. These false teachers in Timothy's day seeking to resist the truth, verse 9, are, says St Paul, corrupted in their thinking and useless, of no value to the faith. And that's true with their contemporary uh, the contemporary examples of this false teaching. There's nothing good in their teaching, nothing that should be entertained. We shouldn't give them the time of day. Useless. And Timothy's assured as we should be that the emptiness of their teaching, the foolishness of their opposition will become obvious. In the last days we should expect false teachers and we should be ready to test, confront and expose them. Listen to what Paul instructed Titus. He says, There are many rebellious people full of empty talk and deception, especially those from the circumcision party. It's necessary to silence them. They are ruining entire households by teaching what they shouldn't in order to get money dishonestly. For this reason, rebuke them sharply so that they may be sound in the faith and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of people who reject the truth. The reality of false teachers in these last days means that we need to be alert and equipped. We must be willing to test their lives. By their fruit, said our Lord, you will know them. And test their doctrine. Does it conform to scripture? And, and, and conformity to scripture is more than their quoting a verse here or there, more than using a verse to support their speculations. You actually have to ask, does it fit the big picture of scripture? Oh, what are the bits of scripture they're leaving out? Oh, and is it out of all proportion? Do they elevate the obscure and incidental to support what they want to think? And, of course, that means you need to know Scripture well yourself and know how it fits together. You need the big story and you need to learn doctrine. Now, that testing of life and teaching is hard, of course, if you're only listening to them on the internet, as so many are doing in lockdown. If you're only hearing some of what they say and knowing nothing of their background, their goals, their relationships, or at least knowing only what they select to share with you. Now, learning these things from the internet, following people on the internet, that takes you very vulnerable to deception, particularly when, like now, you're deprived of Christian community, of meeting with other believers and being able to test with them what you are hearing. An online community, like-minded people online, that is no substitute. They are self-selected, unlike the local church, which is called together by the Lord Jesus from people of all kinds of backgrounds and views. That online community can so easily exclude those who disagree. That's no substitute. Test, confront, if you know these false teachers, and expose so that others are not taken in. The last days, hard times because of hard hearts, 
times when we will encounter false religion, times when we will meet and the work of the gospel will be opposed by false teachers, and also times, as Paul says here, when we believers in a world where people are lovers of self, of money, of pleasure, will face persecution as Paul did, while those who are teaching error will find acceptance and a hearing. But more of that next week. We need to expect these things, to have realistic expectations about our times and to be prepared to deal with them, but also be prepared by having realistic expectations about the power and the truth of the gospel and about our end and their end. Realistic expectations about what will happen to the hard-hearted, to those whose religion is empty, to those who persevere in promoting their error. In this life, often the error, the foolishness of those who oppose the teaching of the gospel is exposed, verse 9, becomes clear to all. That's true, isn't it? Often their greed and self-interest becomes apparent or their sexual misbehaviour or the emptiness of what they called their prophecies. And in this life, verse 13, often people will sink deeper and deeper into their lies, embracing lies. They lose the ability to distinguish truth from error. Deceiving, they also become deceived. And I think we see that with the peddlers of many conspiracy theories whose claims become more and more outlandish. But whether their error is recognised, exposed now or not, just as the depth of the error of the magicians who opposed Moses was exposed when Moses led the people of Israel to freedom through the sea, so the foolishness of all who oppose the gospel will be fully exposed at the last day when the saving triumph of the Lord Jesus is revealed and his people rise with him. Paul's already spoken of that day, the day when the gospel messenger will be vindicated by the revealing in glory of our Lord Jesus. He said he's able to guard what has been entrusted to me until that day. And the gospel tells us that day is sure, doesn't it? I mean, the gospel proclaims Jesus risen from the dead, the son of David. It tells us the Lord Jesus has already triumphed over death and the one who has the power of death. It's not a maybe. And he's triumphed as the son of David, the one who will rule the nations with a rod of iron to whom all will give account. In fact, this is a reminder that we're only talking about the hard times we'll face in the last days because Jesus has come and triumphed. The very phrase, the last days, carries in it the reason to persevere, for it assures us of God's certain plan and of what is next in that plan, the revealing of the Son of God, the revealing of the kingdom of God. In the parable of the wheat and the weeds, Jesus described that time in this way. He speaks of the harvest at the end of the age. And then verse 41, The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will gather from his kingdom all who cause sin and those guilty of lawlessness. They will, be thrown, he will, they will throw them into the blazing furnace where they will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in their father's kingdom. Let anyone who has ears listen. The phrase, the last days, 
tells you of what is coming and that it is certain because Jesus has ushered in these days through his death for our sin and his rising to glory. And the phrase, the last days, also tells you that despite the character of our age and the resistance and opposition the gospel will face, preaching the gospel throughout this world is not some quixotic activity, a vain attempt to turn back the flood of rebellion against God. No, it's actually the main game. That's why there are still the last days, so that the gospel can be preached to all nations, so that we can make disciples until the end of the age. We should have realistic expectations about our time, about the last days, about the inevitability of hard times, of the presence of false religion, of the activity of false teachers opposing the gospel, but we must also have realistic expectations about their end and the end. What comes next? when the gospel is preached to all nations. And expect then that what Jesus has promised to all believers who persevere through these times will be, that we will reign with him. That word is trustworthy, is certain. So equip yourselves to live through the last days, to be unashamed of the gospel in the last days by knowing and understanding God's word, by practising genuine godliness in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit who gives us a new heart to long for and love God's will. Have nothing to do with false religion. Confront and expose error and keep making the gospel known in these days, confident of the power of the gospel to change even hard hearts as it's changed yours and mine. Oh, the power of the gospel not only to change hearts, but to bring forgiven sinners like us to share in the revelation of the triumph of the Lord Jesus when these days are ended. And may that time come soon. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Let's pray. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word and that it gives us, it gives us realistic expectations about what will come. Heeding your word, we pray that we would use these times to prepare ourselves for hard times, for being able to discern false religion, for being able to confront and expose false teaching. Make us diligent students of your word, And help us to give ourselves to the work of your spirit in our hearts so that we would know for sure the power of godliness, the power of a spirit-given new life in our lives. And Father, we pray that in these last days we would make the gospel of our Lord Jesus known as he continues to save in these times. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.